in this situation. He took a pitch in the back, he got beamed for crying out loud. We used heart attack. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? The castration of the major league baseball managers, we know it. Ask me about my winner. What's going on, everybody? Another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Catcher's framing is cheating. And you say that out loud, you're going to get a lot of people's attention, especially when it comes to coaches. You know, what do you coach a catcher to do? A lot of things that happen over the course of baseball involve things that kind of toe the line. Toe the line where you may be breaking a rule and then you say, John, there is no rule that says that a catcher can't move their glove after a ball is pitched and deceive an umpire into thinking that a pitch that should be called a ball is called the strike. And that's up to a certain point, that's their job. And I get that. I understand it. I'm willing to take all that into consideration. But admit that it is what it is. It's deception. It's something that, even though there's no rule that says that you can't do it, it's deceiving the umpire into believing that a pitch that is off the plate should be called a strike. And it's even said, hey, you're, the catcher's stealing a strike. The word stealing is not a positive word. In baseball, when it comes to catcher's framing, it very often is. And I I love the discussion that's involved in this because, listen, there's going to come a point, whether it's in my lifetime, whether it's in my kid's lifetime, um, in all seriousness, that there's going to be some sort of automated strike zone in Major League Baseball. Now, it isn't one of the top discussions or top topics right now because, listen, you know you want to make sure that there is Major League Baseball again, right? You want to make sure that this lockout that was set by the owners turns into something where we're going to see baseball. And you want to watch baseball. Listen, if you're a baseball fan, you're hoping that baseball comes back into the game of play. The Super Bowl was just this past Sunday which we're going to talk about, Super Bowl runner-ups and a history of teams that have lost in the Super Bowl that should mark the start of baseball season, and it's not right now. But catcher's framing. If I take a pitch that's over here, and the umpire, for some reason, is so incompetent that he didn't see that I moved the glove to a point where it's in a strike zone, then I could see how you'd want to do that. If you knew that the umpire was incompetent enough to be tricked. And that's basically what it is. And like I said, a lot of the, the negative feedback when I mentioned that catcher's framing is cheating comes from coaches. You know, a coach doesn't want to tell the kid, hey, don't do that because it's not within, a, you know, there's deception involved. That it's at the very least gamesmanship. It's not moral to fool an umpire. And my question goes to, to this. 
How does it relate to other rules that we tend to make into bigger discussions? You know, that, that it bothers you to a point where there's sticky stuff on baseballs and pitchers use that to make the ball move in ridiculous directions. And Major League Baseball has decided to address that. They've jumped in and said, you know what, we're going to make it a rule. We're going to ban the sticky stuff because we, we don't like the way it's changed the game. There's a while that, hey, you know, you can apply whatever substance on the ball you want as long as the umpire didn't see it, as long as it wasn't dug out, as long as, you know, an umpire didn't come to the mound and find pine tar on your glove. And, you know, with that, you were subjected to a, an ejection from the game and in some cases suspensions. How does it apply to stealing signs? Because stealing, stealing signs is an absolute hot topic when it comes to baseball. There is an entire team that fans try to discredit because of the use of technology to steal signs that the other team was implementing. And how much to avoid sign stealing is set against allowing the signs to be so obvious. And I've said all along, if you're a catcher and you put down the friggin' number one in plain view that anybody that's watching on television can see it, who are you to say that the batter can't look back and see it? Who are you to say that the third base coach or the runner at second, if it was so obvious that you're given this sign, can make it, you know, can look? Are they're banned from being able to see something that's so blatantly obvious? And you, I compare that to framing when it comes to catchers. If you're going to take advantage of the incompetence of the umpire, that they can't see that you jerked your arm in a ridiculous direction to move a ball that's clearly outside of the strike zone into the strike zone, then I give that catcher credit 100% of the time. And I understand why it's become a skill. And I understand why we've given credit to catchers that have been able to do this better than others. That being said, it still doesn't mean that it's right. And if you're telling me that it's so blatantly better and okay for baseball, that catchers could do that while stealing a sign when that same catcher can put down the number one, can wiggle their hand like this for crying out loud. And that batter can't look back and see the obvious that there's going to be some sort of off-speed pitch coming from the pitcher. Then I have a problem with that. Once again, fans decide to be selective over what they want to accept into their game and what they're going to detest, want removed, and judge everybody that's done it. It's happened with steroids. And we can have a whole different discussion on steroids if you want. While they're being accepted in a game to bring fans back, you have no problem in 1995, 96, 97, 98, when fans are coming back into the stadiums. Why? Because players are hitting home runs. Synthetically enhanced players are hitting bombs left and right. And fans are coming back into the seats to watch the game that they've abandoned because the players and the owners let them down when they didn't have a World Series in 1994. And you have... The commissioner in the front row, Bud Selig, his hands up 
cheering for Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa as they're hitting said synthetically induced bombs. And like I said, the fan wants to be selective. They have no problem with steroids when they're saving a the game. But when Congress gets involved and when home run records are in danger, Barry Bonds breaks Henry Aaron's 755 home run record, which you thought was going to stay in a sport and was so great for the game because of everything that Henry Aaron went through. All of a sudden you look back and you say, hey, that shouldn't count. Your favorite team may have won a World Series with a pitcher that was scuffing a baseball, that was moving a baseball. Whitey Ford admits using spitballs, as did other big game pitchers in big moments. If it benefited your team, you don't have a problem with it. Whatever was in the past, you say, is in the past. We talk about rule changes with instant replay. The 1985 World Series comes into question all the time. A blatantly missed call by an umpire that would have clearly been overturned today may have determined who the World Series champion was in 1985. And if you're a Kansas City Royal fan, do you take that back? And I'm not saying, as I try to connect this to catcher framing, I'm not saying tell the catcher not to do that. Should there be any sort of penalty for the obvious flop? And I use the word flop because we could compare it to basketball, to in some cases football, but most importantly to uh, world soccer. You know, you see, you, you get the attention of an official at the end to make them think that somebody did something to you, so they call a foul. There's a line between gamesmanship and cheating when it comes to that. You know, if you're caught flopping, you're you're entitled to some sort of sanction or penalty or ejection, or fine, or suspension, depending on the egregiousness of it. Obviously, depending on the official. Maybe depending on the obviousness of what you were trying to manipulate. And once again, how does this differ from a catcher trying to manipulate the location of a pitch to fool an umpire into believing that a pitch that's outside of the strike zone is a strike? And I think this is a good discussion. Like I said, you know, you're, you know, trolls aside, for those of you that are just going to take one part of the statement and go crazy off of it, yeah, do what you want. You know, say what you want about me. I'm okay with it. You know, I know what I can bring to the table. And those of you that have followed the show, that have gotten to know me personally, you know where I'm at in regards to my knowledge of sports and sports history. And certainly the rules of the game. I'm just saying, catcher framing, at the very least, is deception. If you want to say it in a positive way, you'll call it gamesmanship. Same gamesmanship that involves, by the way, the hitter stepping in and out of the batter's box. You know, that that could be governed if the sport wanted to do that. The umpires could force batters to stay in the box. Umpires can force pitchers to not step off the rubber, particularly without runners on base. But all this is done within the head games that exist in baseball. And like I said, you could be against sticky stuff. You could be against the stealing of signs. But clearly, it's a different perception when it comes to catchers stealing strikes. And that's really what it is. 
And you could say there's a skill involved. And even if you want to talk about it for the most basic sense, there is always that borderline pitch. There's always that pitch that's right there, either on the black or right on the edge of the black. That clearly clearly can go either way. You, know, you, you played a four out of five dentist game. And you say four out of five dentists would have called that a strike. But one of them would have called it a ball because, you know, maybe it really was off the plate. And there's always that gray area that's going to exist. And that's why framing is so prominent. That's why the ability to catch a ball correctly or use the mitt to catch the ball by leaving the mitt in the strike zone is considered such a skill. And those are all things, like I said, I'm in favor of. I like, I'm going to, if I was into coaching, which I'm not, I prefer to cover the game from the angle that I do. But from a coaching standpoint, you want your catcher to be able to catch the ball, to take the most amount of strikes. And I understand that there's a little bit of a skill involved. That being said, it's still manipulation. It's still deception. And I will use the word cheating. We take the word cheating and we, we like to take it to the biggest nth degree. Oh my God, he thinks it's cheating. Well, number one, it is. But cheating has been part of baseball for 150 years. Cheating has done so many different things to make the fabric of the game of baseball into what it is today. There's the game between the ears. And sometimes there's manipulation involved. There's a tag play at second base. You want to make sure the umpire thinks you tagged the runner every single time, even in times where you actually didn't. Because we don't know what the angle of the umpire is. We want to make it to look close enough like you tagged somebody that didn't. And trust me, nobody is going back and saying, hey, you should have changed the way that uh, you put that tag down because it's deceptive. No, I'm not saying tell the catcher not to move the glove into the strike zone because it's deceptive. But it doesn't hide from the fact that it is. And that's the point that I've been trying to make. And like I said, if you're on the other side and this bothers you so much and you think framing is so great for the sport of baseball, it's just another example why, why selective cheating is part of the fabric of the very game that we follow. And it's okay. Like I said, fooling an umpire into thinking that, you know, the opposite call is what it is. You know, being off the bag as a first baseman when you're stretching, banking on the umpire's incompetence, saying that you were on the bag even in times where you're not, saying that somebody was out when they were safe, a, a pitch was a ball when it was a strike. It's all deception. Deception seems to be a more acceptable word for catcher's framing. At least it could be agreed that framing is the deception of the receiving of a pitch to fool an umpire into believing that a pitch that is outside of the strike zone is actually in the strike zone. And like I said, you're banking on the incompetence of the umpire. And you could do that. You could do that as long as you could get away with it. You could do it as long as it's within the confines of the rules. Like I said, 
uh, you know, spin rate was at an all-time high when pitchers were using spider tack and making the ball do crazy things and making it hard for the batter to hit. So while it was within the confines of the rules, it was encouraged. The best pitchers in baseball took advantage of the ability to put this shit, which I call, on a baseball to make it do these crazy things. And once baseball took it out of the rules, all of a sudden those players were referred to as cheaters. A couple pitchers were suspended for it. A couple were ejected from games. Am I advocating that baseball does some sort of rule to change this? No. I'm just pointing out that something is what it is. And if something that's gamesmanship goes along the lines of deception and something that is deceptive is fooling an umpire, and like I said, you could talk about the competence of the umpire all you want into calling the game differently than it should be called, then I don't think the word cheating is so out of line. And my point is not that it should be banned. It's that it should be called what it is. And the point is, is that baseball fans like certain forms of cheating. Framing is a form of cheating that's universally accepted in baseball. Whether it's at the pros, whether it's at the high school level, whether it's, you know, John Q. wannabe Little League coach that all of a sudden thinks he's so knowledgeable about baseball. It's an accepted form of cheating. So I spent some time this morning thinking about the Cincinnati Bengals. AFC champions, something that they could never have taken away from them. Lost a tough game, a game that they could have won. Looked great coming out of the box in the second half, getting those 10 straight points, right? Looked like really into the fourth quarter that was a game they could have won. Even down at the end, it was pretty much a, a toss-up. A, a toss they could have won, they could have lost, they, they lost. And I started to think about, in a Super Bowl era, teams that have lost the Super Bowl. Yeah, there's examples of, of teams that have lost the Super Bowl, but you know, over time they ended up winning. I think of John Elway and the Denver Broncos when I think of this. The three Super Bowls they lost in the 80s. Lost to the Giants, lost to the Redskins, lost to the San Francisco 49ers. And then at some point, you know, late 90s, they win two Super Bowls back-to-back. Beat the Falcons, they beat of course, the Green Bay Packers. And John Elway's career takes a different type of trajectory. It wasn't that he wasn't going to get in the Hall of Fame. You know, Fran Tarkenton lost three Super Bowls. Of course, Jim Kelly lost four Super Bowls. Pro football acknowledges that type of greatness and puts those players in the respective Hall of Fame in which they deserve. John Elway is that outlying example of somebody who lost the Super Bowl that down the road ends up going out there and winning it. And one of the major points I want to make about this is if you think of some of the other teams that played in the Super Bowl, they get forgotten very easily. And I'm going to type in list of Super Bowl winners. And I think this is interesting because 
there's teams that as time goes by, it's natural for the average football fan to forget. Now I think of the early days of the Super Bowl. You know, a team like the Oakland Raiders, the Kansas City Chiefs at some point ended up winning a Super Bowl. The Minnesota Vikings who lost Super Bowl four, which a lot of people forget. Fran Tarkenton was not their quarterback. Their quarterback in 1969 was Joe Cap. Bud Grant was still the coach. Fran Tarkenton was a Viking going back from to 61, but he was playing for the Giants at that time. Miami Dolphins lost the Super Bowl in Super Bowl V. They'd win a couple back-to-back. And some of the teams you follow, you say, all right, they lost the Super Bowl. Eventually, they'd win. But as you get closer, really into my lifetime, which you know started October 12, 1979, you know, I think of a team like the Rams. The 1979 Rams lost to the Pittsburgh Steelers 31-19 in Super Bowl fourteen. And I think about that because that Rams team, as much as it had good, talented players, never got themselves back to another Super Bowl. The Bengals, a couple of years later, lost Super Bowl uh, 16 to the San Francisco 49ers. Kenny Anderson was that quarterback, their quarterback, toward the end of his career. They got back a couple of years later in Super Bowl 23 when Boomer Esiason was that quarterback lost the tough Super Bowl to the Giants. But over time, they became forgettable. And the Buffalo Bills, of course, losing the four straight Super Bowls, that's a team that you're always going to remember because nobody in the history of the NFL has ever gotten to four straight Super Bowls, win or lose. And the fact that that team was able to get themselves into big games in Tampa, Minneapolis, Pasadena, and Atlanta is one of those amazing records. And I look at the decade of the 1990s, and I always find it fascinating because you think of the Braves of the 1990s, but also the Buffalo Bills in the 1990s. And what they had in, I don't know, that makes them kind of similar is the fact that they really kind of dominated that decade without winning, in Buffalo's case, and without winning a whole lot if you're in the Atlanta Braves case. Yes, the World Series in 1995 substantiated that dominance that the Braves had over the decade of the 1990s and the 14 straight division championships which I challenge because of the strike of 1994 I only say 11 straight division championships but by the way I I still think that's pretty friggin impressive and you go back to the days of the Yankees from 1947 to 1964 and that's a whole nother league of dominance to win finish number one in your league when only one team makes it to the postseason for the majority of those seasons. It's freaking ridiculous. But to get back to my point, you're thinking of Super Bowl dominance, but also the penalty and maybe what's bad about being the runner-up. And I, I, when I titled this show, I selectively didn't use the word Super Bowl losers. Because I don't think they're losers in any stretch of the word. Yes, the big game, they didn't win. But they still won the the conference championship of their respective league. And in some cases, you're talking about a margin for error that isn't too much. You're talking about a break that goes one way or the other. I I think of the first Super Bowl that the Bills were in against the Giants. You know, a, a kick that just happened to never 
curl into the upright. Scott Norwood has probably tried that same kick from the same distance with the same wind and has put the ball within the uprights the majority of the time. He missed that kick, and because of that, the whole history of the Buffalo Bills franchise is changed. And like I said, the Bills are different because they won four straight AFC championships. They're known for losing four straight Super Bowls. But you follow other teams. The Neil O'Donnell Steelers are very easily forgotten about. The Drew Bledsoe Patriots are very easy, easily forgotten about. You know, Brett Favre gets back to the Super Bowl after winning with the Packers in uh, you know, in 96 going into 97. You know, the the Chris Chandler Falcons. Before that, I think one of the be- better examples are the uh, the San Diego Chargers of Super Bowl, what were we talking about? 29 when they lost to the 49ers, Stan Humphreys. They made it to the Super Bowl. It wasn't very competitive. They lost, but they were still there, and a lot of fans tend to forget about that. And listen, if you're a Chargers fan, you don't forget about it. Certainly if you're a 49ers fan, the fan of the team that won the Super Bowl, you remember who they beat. But I look at a lot of Super Bowl losers. The Tennessee Titans, my team, made it to Super Bowl, you know, what are you talking about, 34. Lost to the Rams. A drive as, as they're moving the ball downfield. Kevin Dyson being just short of the goal line. Outside of the fans of the Titans slash Oilers and the Rams, a lot of people forget about that. <coughs> the Giants who had won four Super Bowls lost one the next year to the Ravens. A different Giants team. You know, Eli Manning wasn't the quarterback. You know, it wasn't Phil Simms, Jeff Hostetler. It was Kerry Collins. You know, the Rams made it back with Kurt Warner a year later. And you think of some of the teams that made it to the Super Bowl. The Raiders. The Carolina Panthers with Jake DeLome. The Eagles with Donovan McNabb. The Seahawks with Matt Hasselbeck. The Bears with Rex Grossman. And like I said, for the exception of the regions of the teams that made it to these respective Super Bowls, John Q. football fan isn't really remembering that. And once again, I don't have any issue with that, but it just shows the margin for error that exists in these games. And you think of the Cardinals with Kurt Warner there when they lost to the Steelers. You know, the Colts, who had won a Super Bowl, got back. It's not that big of a deal. The Steelers had won a Super Bowl and got back. You know, the Patriots and the amount of Super Bowls they won. But even the this generation of San Francisco 49er fans, which they were known for being 5-0 and zero in the Super Bowl. Montana went in four. Steve Young went in the other. If you remember the 49ers and you think of them now, you think of them in the last decade of losing two Super Bowls. Or maybe you don't remember them at all. You know, the Broncos with Peyton Manning. Well, you know what? They won a Super Bowl a couple years later. The Seahawks won a Super Bowl, then lost a Super Bowl. How about the Atlanta Falcons? And I talked about the Atlanta Falcons team of the late 90s that gets forgotten, the Chris Chandler team. But the team with Matt Ryan certainly will be remembered for the way that they lost the Super Bowl. You know, the fact that they were up 28-3 and Tom Brady and the Patriots led them back and it was the first Super Bowl in the history of the Super Bowl era that went to overtime. 
you know, the first championship, you had to go back to the old uh, the NFL days where you're talking about a sudden death type of situation. You know, the Patriots who lost the next year, but, you know, who cares? You know, they won enough Super Bowls. You know, the Rams validated their loss to the super, in the Super Bowl to the Patriots with a Super Bowl victory this past year. The Chiefs lost the year before, but they won a Super Bowl the year before. But my long-winded point on this is if you think about the Bengals and you think of Joe Burrow, maybe you think of the Miami Dolphins and Dan Marino. And you ask, John, why do you bring that up? Well, you know, Super Bowl 19, 38-16, 49ers over the Dolphins in California, in Stanford. You think of the promising career of a young Dan Marino. And how long he has left. How many years is he going to be able to play in this league? And I'm sure at that time, it was spoken about how great of a chance that Dan Marino has of going back to the Super Bowl. And you hear a lot of the same utterances when it comes to Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals. And I'm not saying Joe Burrow ain't going back to the Super Bowl. But if he doesn't, I think his Super Bowl appearance will be remembered in the same likes as the Carolina Panthers and Jake DeLome, maybe even the Carolina Panthers and Cam Newton. And Cam Newton might be a very good comparison to the likes of Joe Burrow. Because Cam Newton in his prime was every bit as good as Joe Burrow, was every bit as much of a top five quarterback in a national league as Joe Burrow is right now. And of course, Cam Newton had a, a serious injury that has derailed his career. And I don't, I mean, I would at least use conventional wisdom to doubt whether Cam Newton can get back to that type of form again. I hope he does. Cam Newton, to me, is a, a quarterback worth rooting for. Unfortunately, you look at him over the last three seasons or so, injuries plus performance has not equaled to a, a high ranking. If I'm going to name my top 20 quarterbacks in the NFL, I may be able to name 20 before I, I get to the likes of Cam Newton and how productive they've been over the last three years. And it doesn't mean Joe Burrow's going through the same path. But there was a point you would think Cam Newton getting to the Super Bowl, winning the MVP. Hey, it's okay that they lost. Yes, it's a tough game. But in the end, Cam Newton's going back. We're going to see Cam Newton there again. Aren't we? No, maybe not. Same thing you say about Joe Burrow. So I was thinking about the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and obviously you, you think of the likes of this class, Tony Baselli, Cliff Branch, Leroy Butler, Sam Mills, Richard Seymour, Bryant Young, and it's a six-person class. Cliff Branch, I, I always thought, was a, a little bit, um, maybe didn't get the credit he deserved, played with Bolitnikoff, a lot of Raiders from, from that era are in the Hall of Fame. I think it's easy to forget about him, but I thought he was dominant. You know, caught 500 balls, you know, on his way to 10,000 receiving yards. I, I think he's a Hall of Famer, 72 to 85, played the game a long time. Leroy Butler, who I always thought was a, you know, a weird exclusion from the NFL. One of the best defensive backs of the 1990s. And, you know, I, I look at other defensive backs that are in the Hall of Fame and he say, did they really do more than Leroy Butler, every one of them? Obviously, some of them did, but Leroy Butler, to me, 
you know, always answered the question. And the, the question that comes up when you think of Hall of Famers, and I believe, I really believe in this. You mention a player's name, and do you want to say Hall of Fame after it? And to me, it's kind of easy. You know, that's how the, I believe the Hall of Fame should be. You say somebody's name, and then you have to debate back and forth different points from different experts where some feel that player A is a Hall of Famer and others feel player A is not a Hall of Famer then I would lean towards that player not being a Hall of Famer. Sam Mills, you know, it's sad that, you know, his life ended up ending the, the way it did. You know, Sam Mills, I, you know, I followed him because he was a New Jersey guy. You know, Neptune, New Jersey. Had a solid career. I don't have any issue with him being in the Hall of Fame. Played for some New Orleans teams that were known for a very good defense. Unfortunately, never kind of got themselves to prominence in the postseason. But, you know, I think of Sam Mills and, and, and I always kind of wondered, hey, what is the Hall of Fame doing holding him back? So pretty similar to Cliff Branch, I got no issue with Sam Mills. Leroy Butler, to me, was more of an egregious omission. Richard Seymour, dominant player. Multiple Super Bowls with the Patriots. I really think of him as a dominating player of an era. Three-time Super Bowl champ. You know, he spent the last four years or so with the Raiders. If he finished his career in New England, would he be in already? I don't have any issue with Richard Seymour. I look at Bryant Young a little bit differently. And I don't want this to be a knock on Bryant Young. Because, you know, I followed Bryant Young's career. thought he was a solid player. Um, you know, 11 sacks, 11 and a half sacks, 89 and a half for his career. Um, Super Bowl champion, four-time Pro Bowler, one-time All-Pro. Uh, you know, all-90s all team. 99 comeback player of the year. Listen, I, I respect the fact that he was a, a solid player. But I don't think Bryant Young... And I don't think is one of the premier players of that very generation. And it's going to come off as some Bryant Young hate, sure. But he's not the only player that I feel that way about. Tony Baselli, very well-respected lineman. Was a three-time All-Pro, five-time Pro Bowler. But played just six full seasons in the NFL. Now you want to say, hey, Gail Sayers is in the Hall of Fame. He played for less than that. Earl Campbell only had six really good seasons. And is in a Hall of Fame. And their biasness that is against that offensive lineman that we really feel, and I, I agree with this, and there's a lot of people that agree with this too, that offensive linemen don't get the due respect that they have gotten. And I think the Hall of Fame over the last decade, decade plus, has done a lot to really honor some of the better offensive linemen. Now, for six seasons, you could say that there were a few tackles in the NFL that were any better than Tony Baselli. But is he a surefire Hall of Famer? And I don't know. And I guess if I'm going to rank the class of these six in order of most deserving, I go Leroy Butler 1, Richard Seymour 2, Sam Mills 3, Cliff Branch 4, Tony Baselli 5, Bryant Young 6. And like I said, this is a time to honor their career. All very good at the sport. 
And it brings, of course, the discussion. Has football gotten to a point where it's watered down? It's Hall of Fame. If you're going to say, could you compare Bryant Young, perhaps, to the base to the football version of Harold Baines in baseball? I just, I've followed Bryant Young's career, and I just don't think he's absolutely 100% unequivocally a Hall of Famer. Like I said, one person's opinion, and thank God for Bryant Young, my opinion doesn't count. But I think sometimes, you know, we look at Hall of Fame classes, and hey, sometimes players are more immortalized for what they've done. And you wonder, if you're listening to the show for the first time, you don't know really where I go with it. My issue applies to baseball, where I just think that you're looking at immortality when you talk about the Hall of Fame and a particular sport that hasn't done enough to honor the greatest to ever play in its sport. And I'm going to be selective when I look look at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I am going to be selective when it comes to the NBA, the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame, which, by the way, there's a new series of candidates that, that we could debate and discuss. You know, Bill Fitch had a losing record as a head coach. He's in the Hall of Fame. You know, Bucky Harris, losing record as a Major League Baseball manager. He's in the Hall of Fame. And then I look at a sport in baseball that has the likes, uh, the greatness of Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and many, many others that are disregarded for different reasons. The Pete Roses, the Joe Jacksons. Like I said, the many, many others for many different reasons. Even down to Kurt Schilling for his political preference. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's a it's a straight line when you're talking about what's the qualifications to get into a hall of fame, and that's why I think it is worth analyzing each one of the classes as they come through and say, "Hey, congratulations to all of them," but some are a little more deserving. So we'll be back with you probably Monday as we'll get together for another edition of the Passball Show. Reminder, the show is brought to you by JohnPLE.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, we'll be doing uh, the color cast probably uh, either earlier or later on Monday. So those of you that have followed that program, which I've looked, it looks like there's absolutely zero people that follow that show. But hopefully we get it to grow over the course of time as I do believe in in its in the network's organic ability to generate some interest. So we'll see how that goes. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side. I have many leather-bound books. My apartment smells of rich mahogany. Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the freaking World Series? I was going to listen to that, but then I just carried on living my life. I may come out as the biggest Major League Baseball manager apologist. That'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park. I was supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. 
I'm a dude playing the dude disguises another dude. There are only two managers in baseball's Hall of Fame who have losing records. One of them is the iconic Connie Mack, who you could say, in spite of winning five World Series championships as a manager, could be in as much as a pioneer. And what side of the spectrum they're on? Were they pitching? Were they batting? If your favorite team was pitching and a ball got inside to hit a batter, there's no way it could have been on purpose. But if, if you were a fan of the team that was batting and a ball got inside and hit somebody or went behind somebody's head, absolutely 100% unequivocally that pitcher was throwing at They put their tail between their legs and decided they're going to do exactly what they're told. You damn well right. Better make him the manager over the next series of years. Thirty-five years ago, I could have loaned your parents the money for an abortion.